Chapter 13 of The Struggles of Brown, Jones, and Robinson by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Wisdom of Poppins George Robinson again walked upon roses, and for a while felt that he had accomplished bliss. What has the world to offer equal to the joy of gratified love? What triumph is there so triumphant as that achieved by valor over beauty? Take the goods the gods provide you. The lovely Thais sits beside you. Was not that the happiest moment in Alexander's life? Was it not the climax of all his glories and the sweetest drop which fortune poured into his cup? George Robinson now felt himself to be a second Alexander. Beside him the lovely Thais was seated evening after evening, and he, with no measured stint, took the goods the gods provided. He would think of the night of that supper in Smithfield, when the big brisket sat next to his love, half hidden by her spreading flounces, and would remember how, in his spleen, he had likened his rival to an ox prepared for the sacrifice with garlands. Poor ignorant beast of the field, he had said, apostrophizing the unconscious brisket, how little knowest thou how ill those flowers become thee, or for what purpose thou art thus caressed. They will take from thee thy hide, thy fatness, all that thou hast, and divide thy carcass among them, and yet thou thinkest thyself happy, poor foolish beast of the field. Now that ox had escaped from the toils, and a stag of the forest had been caught by his antlers and was bound for the altar. He knew all this, and yet he walked upon roses and was happy. Sufficient for the day is the evil thereof, he said to himself, the lovely Thais sits beside me. Shall I not take the goods the gods provide me? The lovely Thais sat beside him evening after evening for nearly two months up in Mr. Brown's parlor, but as yet nothing had been decided as to the day of their marriage. Sometimes Mr. and Mrs. Poppins would be there, smiling, happy, and confidential, and sometimes Mr. and Mrs. Jones, careworn, greedy, and suspicious. On those latter evenings the hours would all be spent in discussing the profits of the shop and the fair division of the spoils. On this subject Mrs. Jones would be very bitter, and even the lovely Thais would have an opinion of her own which seemed to be anything but agreeable to her father. Marianne, her lover said to her one evening, when words had been rather high among them, if you want your days to be long in the land, you must honor your father and mother. I don't want my days to be long if we're never to come to an understanding, she answered, and I've got no mother, as you know well, or you wouldn't treat me so. You must understand, father, said Sarah Jane, that things shan't go on like this. Jones shall have his rights, though he doesn't seem half man enough to stand up for them. What's the meaning of partnership if nobody's to know where the money goes to? I've worked like a horse, said Jones, 
I'm never out of that place from morning to night, not so much as to get a pint of beer, and as far as I can see, I was better off when I was at Scrimble and Grutz. I did get my salary regular. Mr. Brown was at this time in tears, and as he wept he lifted up his hands. "'My children, my children,' said he. "'That's all very well, father,' said Marianne. "'But whimpering won't keep anybody's pot a-boiling. "'I'm sick of this sort of thing, "'and to tell the truth I think it's quite time "'to see some sort of a house over my head.' "'Would that I could seat you in marble halls,' said George Robinson. "'Oh, bother,' said Marianne. That sort of a thing is very good in a play, but business should be business. It must always be acknowledged in favor of Mr. Brown's youngest daughter that her views were practical and not overstrained by romance. During these two or three months a considerable intimacy sprang up between Mr. Poppins and George Robinson. It was not that there was any similarity in their characters, for in most respects they were essentially unlike each other. But perhaps this very difference led to their friendship. How often may it be observed in the fields that a high-bred, quick-paced horse will choose some lowly donkey for his close companionship, although other horses of equal birth and speed be in the same pasture? Poppins was a young man of an easy nature and soft temper, who was content to let things pass by him unquestioned, so long as they passed quietly. Live and let live were words that were often on his lips, by which he intended to signify that he would overlook the peccadilloes of other people as long as other people overlooked his own. When the lady who became afterwards Mrs. Poppins had once called him a rascal, he had not with loud voice asserted the injustice of the appellation but had satisfied himself with explaining to her that even were it so he was still fit for her society he possessed a practical philosophy of his own by which he was able to steer his course in life he was not perhaps prepared to give much to others but neither did he expect that much should be given to him there was no ardent generosity in his temperament, but then also there was no malice or grasping avarice. If in one respect he differed much from our Mr. Robinson, so also in another respect did he differ equally from our Mr. Jones. He was at this time a counting-house clerk in a large wharfinger's establishment and had married on a salary of eighty pounds a year. I tell you what it is, Robinson, said he about this time. I don't understand this business of yours. No, said Robinson, perhaps not. A business like ours is not easily understood. You don't seem to me to divide any profits. In an affair of such magnitude the profits cannot be adjusted every day, nor yet every month. But a man wants his bread and cheese every day. Now there's old Brown. He's a deal sharper than I took him for. Mr. Brown, for a commercial man of the old school, possesses considerable intelligence, said Robinson. 
Throughout all these memoirs, it may be observed that Mr. Robinson always speaks with respect of Mr. Brown. Very considerable indeed, said Poppins. He seems to nobble everything. Perhaps that was the old school. The young school ain't so very different in that respect. Only perhaps there isn't so much for them to nobble. A regular division of profits has been arranged for in our deed of partnership, said Robinson. That's uncommon nice, and very judicious, said Poppins. It was thought to be so by our law advisers, said Robinson. But yet, you see, old Brown nobbles the money. Now, if ever I goes into partnership, I shall bargain to have the till for my share. You never get near the till, do you? I attend to quite another branch of the business, said Robinson. Then you're wrong. There's no branch of the business equal to the ready money branch. Old Brown has lots of ready money always by him nowadays. It certainly was the case that the cash received day after day over the counter was taken by Mr. Brown from the drawers and deposited by him in the safe. The payments into the bank were made three times a week, and the checks were all drawn by Mr. Brown. None of these had ever been drawn except on behalf of the business, but then the payments into the bank had by no means tallied with the cash taken, and latterly, for the last month or so, the statements of the daily cash taken had been very promiscuous. Some payments had, of course, been made both to Jones and Robinson for their own expenses, but the payments made by Mr. Brown to himself had probably greatly exceeded these. He had a vague idea that he was supreme in money matters because he had introduced capital into the firm. George Robinson had found it absolutely impossible to join himself in any league with Jones, so that hitherto Mr. Brown had been able to carry out his own theory. The motto divide et impera was probably unknown to Mr. Brown in those words, but he had undoubtedly been acting on the wisdom which is conveyed in that doctrine. Jones and his wife were preparing themselves for war, and it was plain to see that a storm of battle would soon be raging. Robinson also was fully alive to the perils of his position, and anxious as he was to remain on good terms with Mr. Brown, was aware that it would be necessary for him to come to some understanding. In his difficulty he had dropped some hints to his friend Poppins, not exactly explaining the source of his embarrassment, but saying enough to make that gentleman understand the way in which the firm was going on. I suppose you're in earnest about that girl, said Poppins. Poppins had an offhand irreverent way of speaking, especially on subjects which from their nature demanded delicacy. That was frequently shocking to Robinson. If you mean Miss Brown, said Robinson, in a tone of voice that was intended to convey a rebuke, I certainly am in earnest. My intention is that she shall become Mrs. Robinson. But when? As soon as prudence will permit, and the lady will consent. Miss Brown has never been used to hardship. For myself, I should little care what privations I might be called on to bear, but I could hardly endure to see her in want. 
My advice to you is this. If you mean to marry her, do it at once. If you and she together can't manage the old man, you can't be worth your salt. If you can do that, then you can throw Jones overboard. I am not in the least afraid of Jones. Perhaps not, but still you'd better mind your P's and Q's. It seems to me that you and he and the young woman are at sixes and sevens, and that's the reason why old Brown is able to nobble the money. I certainly should be happier, said Robinson, if I were married and things were settled. As to marriage, said Poppins, my opinion is this. If a man has to do it, he might as well do it at once. They're always pecking at you, and a fellow feels that if he's in for it, what's the good of his fighting it out? I should never marry except for love, said Robinson. Nor I either, said Poppins. That is, I couldn't bring myself to put up with a hideous old hag because she'd money. I should always be wanting to throttle her. But as long as they're young and soft and fresh, one can always love them. At least I can. I never loved but one, said Robinson. There was a good many of them used to be pretty much the same to me. They was all very well, but as to breaking my heart about them, why, it's a thing that I never understood. Do you know, Poppins, what I did twice? I thrice, in those dark days. What, when Brisket was after her? Yes, when she used to say that she loved another, Thrice did I go down to the river bank, intending to terminate this wretched existence. Did you now? I swear to you that I did. But Providence, who foresaw the happiness that is in store for me, withheld me from the leap. Polly once took up with a sergeant, and I can't say I liked it. And what did you do? I got uncommon drunk, and then I knocked the daylight out of him. We've been the best of friends ever since. But about marrying, if a man is to do it, he'd better do it. It depends a good deal on the young woman, of course, and whether she's comfortable in her mind. Some women ain't comfortable, and then there's the devil to pay. You don't get enough to eat and nothing to drink, and if ever you leave your pipe out of your pocket, she smashes it. I've known him of that sort, and a man had better have the rheumatism constant. I don't think Marianne is like that. Well, I can't say. Polly isn't. She's not over good, by no means. And would a deal sooner sit in an armchair and have her victuals and beer brought to her than she'd break her back by working too hard? She'd like to be always a junketing, and that's what she's best for, as is the case with many of them. I've seen her as sportive as a young fawn at the Hall of Harmony. But she ain't a young fawn any longer, and as for Harmony, it's my idea that the less of Harmony a young woman has, the better. It makes them give themselves airs, and think as how their ten fingers were made to put into yellow gloves, and that a young man hasn't nothing to do but stand, treat, and whirl em about till he ain't able to stand. A game's very well, but bread and cheese is a deal better. I love to see beauty enjoying itself gracefully. My idea of a woman is incompatible with the hard work of the world. 
I would fain do that myself, so that she should ever be lovely. But she won't be lovely a bit the more. She'll grow old all the same, and take to drink very like. When she's got a red nose and a pimply face and a sharp tongue, you'll be glad enough to see her at the wash-tub then. I remember an old song as my father used to sing, but my mother couldn't endure to hear it. Woman takes delight in abundance of pleasure, but a man's life is to labor and toil. That's about the truth of it, and that's what comes of your halls of harmony. You would like woman to be a household drudge? So I would, only drudge doesn't sound well. Call her a ministering angel instead, and it comes to the same thing. They both of them mean much of a muchness. Getting up your linen decent, and seeing that you have a bit of something hot when you come home late. Well, good night, old fellow. I shall have my hair combed if I stay much longer. Take my advice, and as you mean to do it, do it at once, and don't let the olden nobble all the money. Live and let live, that's fair play all over. And so Mr. Poppins took his leave. Had anybody suggested to George Robinson that he should go to Poppins for advice as to his course of life, George Robinson would have scorned the suggestion. He knew very well the great difference between him and his humble friend, both as regarded worldly position and intellectual attainments. But nevertheless there was a strain of wisdom in Poppins' remarks, which, though it appertained wholly to matters of low import, he did not disdain to use. It was true that Marianne Brown still frequented the Hall of Harmony, and went there quite as often without her betrothed as with him. It was true that Mr. Brown had adopted a habit of using the money of the firm without rendering a fair account for the purpose to which he applied it. The Hall of Harmony might not be the best preparation for domestic duties, nor Mr. Brown's method of applying the funds the best specific for commercial success. He would look to both these things and see that some reform were made. Indeed, he would reform them both entirely by insisting on a division of the profits and by taking Marianne to his own bosom. Great ideas filled his mind. If any undue opposition were made to his wishes when expressed, he would leave the firm, break up the business, and carry his now well-known genius for commercial enterprise to some other concern in which he might be treated with a juster appreciation of his merits. Not that I will ever leave thee, Marianne, he said to himself, as he resolved these things in his mind. End of chapter 13 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina